Well, this was a great song to launch into our teaching today. We've been digging deeper, going deeper into a book called Romans. Romans originally started out, if you're not familiar with it, as a letter. It's a real first century letter. It can be dated back to around the year 57. And it is a letter, probably the most significant letter ever written in the history of humankind. And because it is so theologically rich, because the ideas are so foreign to Western thinking that are in it, what people have tried to do is do the opposite of go deeper. They've tried to say, how do we simplify this thing? How do we make it concise? How do we make it clear? And one of the ways they do that is through what's sometimes called the Roman road or the Romans road. Here's one example of that. People will say, let's take a, a piece of Romans, let's put it into an outline form, and this is helpful. It's helpful, but what we're doing is we're going to try to go deeper into it. Here's one example of, of a Romans road or a Roman road. They may start with a verse like Romans 3.23, which says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. you got Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, which we're going to look at today. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised from the dead. You'll be saved. And then there's, this one isn't as, on many, as in as many lists as some of the others, but this one shows up a lot. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. Now, again, it's helpful because it kind of gives you a snapshot that this is a letter that's really talking about God's salvation and, and, and how does all that work. But again, what we want to do is to go deeper. Uh, and so we're doing what we're saying is some off-roading with the Romans Road and, and trying to, 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 to go deeper into it. Last week, we looked at Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. What we're going to do today is focus on Romans 5.8. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up. Romans 5.8. If you don't have a Bible at home, I want to let you know we keep a stack of them at there's a table there and a table there they're there for you please take one as a free gift all right the verse romans 5 8 says while we were still sinners christ died for us this may be of all the verses in scripture you could make a case that this is the most significant revelation god has ever revealed to us that while we were still sinners christ died for us this is a significant, significant passage. And before we actually now start to dig into it in context, I want to just say a couple things about this right from the get-go. If, if you're new to Christianity, there might be some questions. You look at this passage, and there's some questions that might come to mind. You're like, whoa, 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 Wait, what are you talking about? While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Why does sin merit the death penalty, first of all? And secondly, how can the death of one person affect the salvation of others? If you have those questions, very natural questions. But may it present to you that you already have a reference point for both of those. Before you start kind of checking out this morning and saying, hey, I, I'm not even going to go there because this doesn't even make sense. I don't even agree with your presupposition here that one person's death can atone for other people's death. I'm not even, I can't go there. And sin meriting the death penalty, I can't even put my head around that. Let me just say, you've already got a reference point. Let me just quickly make that um, case, and then we'll dig in. Reference point number one, dealing with question number one. Question number one was, how can, uh, or why does sin merit the death penalty? May I present to you a good reference point for that is a righteous judge. I, I think almost everyone in this room would agree that a righteous judge should act righteously, and that a righteous judge should pick a consequence that fits the crime. Right? I'm not speaking out of line here with that, am I? Think about this. Most people would agree that the punishment should fit the crime. A righteous judge would first look at the law. The righteous judge would then take all the evidence into consideration. And then the righteous judge would render a judgment that aligns the severity of the consequences with the nature of the crime. 
So may I present to you that if God is going to be consistent with his own righteousness, if sin really does merit the death penalty, then God should render that judgment. If God is going to be consistent with his character and if those things are true. Now, as Christians, we, have, we put ourselves in this humble place, at least we should put ourselves in this humble place where we, we acknowledge that there's things that God knows that, that we don't know. And we trust what he reveals to us through the scripture. And one of the things that God reveals through the scripture is um, that the penalty for uh, cursing your father in the Old Testament law was what? Does anyone know? What was the penalty for cursing your father? It was death. And this is an earthly father. So then if you, if you take the natural progression of that, the, the crime, if you're sinning against your heavenly father, there's a consistency there, at least with the theological categories. Last Sunday, we talked about and we looked at this, that when you trace sin back its root, sin is ultimately rebellion. It's rebellion against the created or rebellion by the created against the creator. And that's why God can't just look the other way because sin is a big big deal, and the consequence should fit the crime. And you may disagree with God's verdict, but at least we have a reference point for the principle. At least we have a reference point for the principle that the consequence should fit the crime. All right, second question. Let's take a look at that real quick. How can the death of one person result in the salvation of multiple people? It doesn't seem to make sense, right? How could one person's sacrifice um, possibly lead to others being saved? Well, I want to present to you that you already have a reference for that as well. Um, let's look at question number two. How can the death of one person result in the salvation of others? Well, jumping on a grenade, right? There's an illustration of that. How could the death of one person save others? We've, we've seen it before. We actually brought a video clip. I knew it was daylight savings. I have to do something to wake you up. So we've got a little video clip here from that great theological movie, Captain America, right? Um, we've got this clip before Captain America becomes Captain America. He was kind of the antithesis. Well, not the antithesis. He, he didn't have the, he had a big heart, but his body hadn't caught up yet. So the clip you're about to see, he's in training. He's a scrawny little guy, and we'll see what happens when he has a chance to sa potentially save others. All right, let's roll the clip. Take a needle on that kid's arm. It's going to go right through him. Come on, girls. Look at that. He's making me cry. I am looking for qualities beyond the physical. Do you know how long it took to set up this project? Yeah, All the groveling I had to do in front of Senator What's-His-Name's committees. Yes, I know. I am well aware of your efforts. Then throw me a bone. Hodge passed every test we gave him. He's big, he's fast, he obeys orders, he's a soldier. He's a bully. You don't win wars with niceness, doctor. You win wars with guts. Get away! Get back! Is this a test? He's still skinny. I love that last line, because there's skeptics, you know, and you can even present a case, and there'll always be the skeptics. Do, 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 we have a reference point for this, right? A death of one person can result in the salvation of others. In this case, it was just a test. It wasn't a real grenade. But history is filled with examples of people who sacrificed themselves, and as a result, others were saved. 
I, I say that to, to just say there's a principle here. We agree with the principle. What we don't have is God's perspective, where God is revealing to us, hey, people were saved through this death. You may not understand my perspective, but we at least get the principle for both of these. Now, I want to say, for the record, that a self-sacrificial act doesn't always result in salvation. You could have somebody do something very sacrificial, and it doesn't save anybody. Here, here's a, a quote that I came across as I was preparing for this week. Um, the person said this, if I'm drowning in a well and another man jumps into the well and rescues me while he himself is drowned in that effort, then he's given his life for me. But if I'm attacked by a tiger, I need a different kind of help. My friend can jump into the well, but if the tiger's coming after me, it doesn't matter, right? Makes total sense. Unless we can show there is some con connection between Christ's death and my sin, I can't believe that Christ's death has saved me from sin. And what the scripture does, it, it reveals that God's sacrifice through his son Jesus was unique because there were other godly men and other godly women who died a martyr's death. Take a look at, this is a relative of Jesus. His name was John. Take a look at the similarities between their deaths here, the deaths of Jesus and John. Both made powerful enemies. Both were unjustly imprisoned. Both were admired by a ruler who was afraid to act on his convictions. Both rulers who admired them ordered the executions to please someone else. The wives of both rulers were involved, and the disciples of the victim took the bodies and buried them. There's a lot of similarities here, aren't there, between Jesus and his relative John. But nowhere does God reveal that John's death saved his disciples. Jesus' death was unique. Jesus provided a sinless life that provided the perfect sacrifice that was required. Now, again, I, I just want to hit pause here and say there's humility required here. The kind of humility that we, if you're a parent, expect from your kids. Where there are times you can try to explain it, but at the end of the day, you just have to say, you're going to have to trust me. Parents ever use that language? There's times we have to, right? Or we have to say sometimes, because I said so. The principle is the same with God. There's times where God, you wouldn't understand if I even could explain it to you. I'm asking you to trust me. I'm, it's so because I said so. If you're looking for a different kind of God, you're not going to find him in the scriptures. I'll, I'll just tell you that up front. If you want a God that you understand in your own mind, if you want a God that conforms to your expectations, Christianity is not for you. Because here's the type of thing that our scripture reveals about our God. Here's, this is from the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 11. And in this, he's also citing Isaiah chapter 40. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this is a case where you've got an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture that are overlapping here, both saying the same things. If you want a God who conforms to your expectations, you're not going to find him in the God of Christianity. And you can make up a God in your own mind who forgives the way you think he should forgive. Or you can make up a, a God in your own mind where, where a sacrifice was not required. You can make that up. But this is what the scriptures reveal about the Christian God. And this is from Romans 3.26. We'll get to 5.8 here in a second. This is from Romans 3.26. The, the scripture reveals that God was both just 
and justifier. That God was both of these things. God was just and justifier. Jesus' death on a Roman's cross, it was unique. This was different than John the Baptist. On the cross, God was both just and justifier. In other words, God was that righteous judge. And God was this heroic, self-sacrificing hero. All right, well, we're going to come back to this in just a minute as we explore Romans 5.8 in context. The point I just want to make right now is before you shut down and say, I can't even go there because this is so foreign. I cannot believe that, that, that somehow sin merits a death penalty. I can't believe that the death of one person could save others. May I present to you, you already believe that in principle. It's just that you have a different perspective than the one that God reveals through Scripture. Hopefully that made some sense. All right, I said turn to Romans 5.8. Let's go to it now. Let's dig in. I just wanted to give that, that background before we dived in. Let's do the best we can in less than 20 minutes. Here we go. Less than 20 minutes. We're going to do the best we can to study this text in context. Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if we had a lot of time, we'd start in Romans 1. We'd work all the way to the end, right? We don't have that much time, so let's look at Romans 4 and 5 together to give a little more context here. In chapter 4, Paul puts the Old Testament patriarch Abraham forth as an example. He says, these things I'm talking about, let me give you an example. Let me give you the example of this Old Testament patriarch named Adam, We're gonna, or Abraham. Abraham is going to be put forth as an example of someone who is saved by God's grace rather than by his own works. Now, if you study, one of the reasons we encourage you to study the scriptures is there's all kinds of stuff going on here. Let me just give you a little insight into one of the things that's going on in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, as Paul is talking about Abraham, and he's just having this discussion about Abraham, he's also doing a parallel with Romans 1. So there's parallel stuff going on between Romans 1 and Romans 4. In Romans 1, Paul paints this picture of how humanity as a whole, we are messed up. We are just messed up when it comes to faith. And he's making a case with Abraham that when it comes to faith, at least Abraham got that. There's a contrast between the two. Here are some quick bullets. In Romans 1, humans ignore God, the creator. In Romans 4, Abraham believed in God as creator and life giver. In Romans 1, humans knew about God's power but didn't worship him as, as God. In Romans 4, Abraham recognized God's power and trusted him to use it. In Romans 1, human beings didn't give God glory. In Romans 4, God gave, Abraham gave God glory. And then in Romans 1, God gave men and women over to non procreative sex acts, and in Romans 4, Abraham and Sarah, we find out, conceived in their old age. There's a contrast going on here. And as I said, there's so much going on in Romans, so much going on there. So let's look at Romans 4 just a little bit, a couple specific examples. Let's dig into them as we make our way to chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, Romans 4, verse 3. Let's start there. And here's what it says. It says, what does the Scripture Paul, throughout this book, we've made a comment on this every one of our weeks. Paul always says, what does the Scripture say? And in this case, he didn't have what we call the New Testament yet, so he's referring to the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures that we now call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, what does the Scripture say? Well, the Scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and there he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counting as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Again, throughout his letters, Paul quotes the Hebrew scriptures, these ancient documents that we now call the Old Testament. And Paul here quotes Genesis 15.6 to demonstrate that Abraham, who is much more faithful than most of us, or all of us, was saved by God's grace, not Abraham's own righteous works. Now, if we had time, we would go off on a little trail here. We would go to, Rome, or to Genesis 15.6 that's being quoted here, we take a look at that in context. I encourage you to do this. There's a blood covenant in play there in Genesis 15. Any significance there between a blood covenant and what Jesus did on the cross? There's all of these connections from beginning to end in the scriptures. We just don't have time to get into that one. The, 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 what I want to do right now is I want to say how as Paul pointed the first century Christians to the scriptures of their day, my job is to point us to the scriptures as well. What does God reveal about himself through the scriptures, through the Old, through the New Testament, about himself and his salvation? Well, here's something he reveals. Romans chapter 4, verse 24. Here's something that God reveals about faith and righteousness. And he builds off this example of Abraham that he just gave us. He said the words it was counted to him weren't just written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. So what Scripture reveals is that all who place their faith in God for his salvation are saved. This isn't a special deal that Abraham got. This is available to all of us. This wasn't just, hey, Abraham gets this. We all have access to this. We, we, we have this access to, to God's salvation through faith. We don't obtain salvation by getting everything right or even mostly right. We don't obtain salvation by beating out Hitler or Jihadi John on a curve. We don't obtain salvation by, by avoiding the, the sins that we say are really bad. You see that a lot, right? That's one of the first things when people are skeptical of Christianity. That's one of the first things they'll often say to me is, I can't believe in a God who, you know, who, who would, 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 would either forgive someone like Hitler or not forgive someone like me. You know, we, we, take, we put ourselves in that place. The scripture reveals we're saved by grace through faith. Here's something else. Scripture reveals that God's salvation is like no other salvation. There's so many people, and again, that they'll, put, they'll say, I can't believe in a God who would let these bad things happen. Again, they want a God who conforms to their expectations rather than putting their faith in, in, in the God who I would say is. God's salvation is so much more than salvation from earthly suffering. In fact, God is so big that somehow in his divine plan, he can use it all. He can leverage it all. God's salvation is so much bigger. Here's a quote from a guy, Kyle Snodgrass, that is his real name. Um, he actually came into the covenant. He's a fantastic theologian. Um, he says this, he goes, salvation language, and what he's talking about is when they talk about salvation in the scriptures. Salvation language points primarily to the idea of rescue from danger, but that is, of course, only one of several ways that Paul speaks of God's redeeming activity. No single image, not justification, not salvation, not redemption, not reconciliation, not freedom, or any other is adequate by itself to explain the reality that God has worked for us. This is why Easter is such a big deal for us. Because when we're talking about God's salvation, we're talking about all the above. 
all the above and more. In your notes today, I included what I call the glossary of awesomeness. The glossary. The Bible doesn't have one little one image that it presents that captures salvation. It's all of this and more. When the Bible talks about salvation, maybe you've heard some of these words. And can I say, we dare not erase these words from Christian vocabulary just because people don't understand. We dare not back off from them because it may be confusing. We need to explain them because most people don't know these words, but they are rich. Words like atonement, that means to be at one with God. To be cleansed, our sins are washed away. Freedom, we're released from the bondage of sin. The word gospel means the good news. There's grace, which is unmerited favor. Justified, declared righteous by a divine judge. Propitiation, providing an acceptable sacrifice. Ransom, there was a price paid to a captor. Redeemed, brought back. Reconciled, brought back together. Sanctification, continuing to grow in Christ's likeness. All of this and more is what's meant when God talks about salvation, when we put our faith in God for his salvation. All right, that brings us up to Romans 5. Here we go. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I could camp on any of those words. Let me camp on peace for just a second. Imagine having peace with God. Imagine that, of being in a place where you know that he knows everything you've ever done, where you even know that he knows everything you'll ever do. All the ways you fall short, all the ways you blatantly disobeyed, he knows it all. And while we were sinners... Imagine the peace we would have if we got that down deep, if we let that really sink in. Each week during the series, we added a sign. You might see some of those there behind me. If not, you really needed the coffee this morning, right? The, the sign that we looked at last week was wrong way. We talked about the significance of sin last week. and We said sin is like the sign wrong way, and you just ignore it. There's one of these right down the road, Lexington and 694. It's on the off-ramp. Sin is like telling the creator of the universe, you say wrong way, I say not wrong way for me. I'm going the way I want to go. And you put yourself at risk and you put others at risk. And God says, I can't just turn my head to that. That's sin. Sin is significant. Well, so is grace. And this week's sign is exit. Exit. You turned around from the way you were going. There's an exit that God has provided graciously. On Friday morning, I was making breakfast for our girls. We were listening to an iPod mix, and we were listening to a song by the great theologian Carrie Underwood. <laughs> you know what song I'm talking about? Jesus, take the wheel. Isn't, isn't that rich right there? Isn't that, isn't that ultimately the exit? Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. Steer me the way you want me to go. I give you everything. God has made a way for our sins to be forgiveness, forgiven. So when we come to him in faith and we say, Jesus, take the wheel. When we do, God offers more than eternal life. That's why this is so rich. 
God offers more. There are earthly benefits to it, many, but, but Paul emphasizes this. This is right after Romans 5.2. Here we go into verse 3. Not only that, not only all the stuff he just said, but we rejoice in what? Our sufferings. Our sufferings. You know, can I just say something about this? I, when, I, when I talk, because I've had so many conversations with people who say, the reason I, I, I don't believe anymore is because this bad thing happened to me and God didn't deliver me. No, it's not about you not believing anymore. You didn't believe. This is just revealing it now. And, and praise God for that, because now at least you're being honest with God. Now, it was a testing point, And we said, okay, now we know where your faith is. Let's talk about that now. Let's talk about where these things are reasonable. God, in our sufferings, in our sufferings, we can rejoice in our sufferings. We know that our sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I never connected this passage to chapter 4 before. It's interesting to connect these two. Who was the Old Testament patriarch who was presented as an example in chapter 4? It was Abraham. And they quoted Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham says, God, take the wheel. When Abraham says, God, take the wheel in 15, 6, does all of a sudden the road get smooth in 15, 7? No. So if that's the case with Abraham, should we expect with us too? This is a fallen, sinful world. And here's the good news and here's the hope. God can use it all and work through it all, even our pain, even our suffering. Even the stuff he didn't intend, the stuff the enemy intended for evil, God can use it for good. We can have that hope. And that passage leads right into this next one. For while we were still weak, anyone ever feel weak? Kevin and I are the only ones who feel weak. All right, Kevin, this is for you, brother. This one's for you and a couple others. All right. For those four of us who sometimes feel weak, there's some good news. At the right time, Christ died for me and for Kevin and for Dan and for Kurt. Huh? How about that? The four of us who raised our hands. And, and, and here's the thing. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, all you strong people. That might happen sometimes. But for us weak people, people will barely ever, they will not die for us. But Jesus did. Jesus did. God shows his love for the four of us in this and the rest of y'all who are liars. <laughs> all you liars. We're weak. But you all are liars, right? God shows his love for all of us in this, all of us, while we were still liars, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still going the wrong way. Jesus died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. This passage is so much more powerful when you put it into context, when you put it into context with what came before. Because what came before is a powerful example and a powerful teaching how God's faithfulness can provide hope even when it comes to rejoicing in our sufferings. And what comes after, we're going to get to that in a second, what comes after is this, that God is willing and able to extend his undeserved self-initiating grace to us while we're sinners. How much more can we trust? He's going to be faithful to bring us home. Right? But before we get to that second part, I just want to point out something that is really easy to miss in this passage. In fact, I missed it for 46 years. I make that confession a lot, don't I? I missed it for 46 years. Until I slowed down and brought out my commentaries and took a look at this passage, here was something that I had missed at least right here before. There's a great little commentary 
Um, if you're looking for a great commentary on Romans, it's an easy read. You could even use it like a devotional. It's N.T. Wright's Romans for Everyone. It comes in two short volumes. It's a great little resource to have on your shelf. He writes one for every book of the New Testament. Anyway, he writes about this passage. He says this. He says, there is something strange and powerful in this passage we just read, which Paul has not made explicit before. It creeps up on us almost unaware. It is this. When we look at Jesus, the Messiah, we're looking at whom in action? God. When you're looking at Jesus, who are you looking at? God. If you've ever heard of the Christian doctrine of Trinity, this is one of the reasons it matters. It matters for a lot of reasons. This is one of the reasons why. Because if it wasn't also God on that cross, then God was not just and justifier. And it's interesting. One of our elders, Nancy Ann Yeager, after the service, she came up and said, take a look at Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Before you get to this one that we just looked at, take a look at them. It talks about God. It talks about the Holy Spirit. It talks about Jesus, the Christ. Paul is just really subtly talking about the Trinity right here because it sets all this up. It sets all this up that if God wasn't both Father and Son, then God isn't both just and justifier on the cross. Otherwise, it's God sending somebody else to pay the price. But instead, we've got God the Father and God the Son on the cross. And I tell you, as a dad, it would be easier for me to step right in front of the burning whatever to, put self, to save my kids. So here you've got the ultimate sacrifice. There is no greater sacrifice than someone sacrificing themselves and their one and only son. There is no greater sacrifice. That's what God did on the cross. And Paul just subtly weaves all that in. Wow. Wow. That's the kind of love that's demonstrated on the cross. Now let's continue reading. Let's go past verse 8. And look what it says. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. You know, elsewhere, we looked at this last week, elsewhere, Paul doubles down on the significance of sin. What does he do here? He doubles down on the amazingness of grace, doesn't he? He totally does. If, while we were still sinners, if, while we're still ignoring his wrong way sign, ignoring his just law, rebelling against his righteous authority, if, while we were still objects of righteous wrath, if God took our place on a Roman cross, then how much more is he willing and able to bring us all the way home? Can I get an amen? That's, if you've ever heard language like assurance, if they're using it correctly, this is what they're talking about. Because our assurance isn't in ourself. Our assurance isn't in our own ability. Our assurance isn't in a prayer that we prayed. Our assurance is in God, who was able and willing to go on that cross on our behalf while we were doing the wrong way thing. How much more if we yield to him and we take that exit, how much more can he bring us all the way home no matter what comes at us, no matter how weak we are? How much more? Wow. Wow. If we yield ourselves to God, 
that glossary of awesomeness kicks in. All of it. All of that is available to those who put their faith in God's sacrifice on our behalf. So how do you respond to that? What is the right response to that? Paul anticipates that question. And here's what he says in, in chapter 12. A lot of us, we, we, we may have memorized this passage. This is one when, when I used to be a youth director, we had all of our teens memorize this. And our language is a little bit different. We say, I appeal to you by the grace of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And there's a place to write this down in your notes. You know, how, how do you respond to a God who sacrificed himself, who, who died on our behalf? Well, you present your bodies as what? And yourself as a living sacrifice. You say to this God, I'm going to put my full trust in you. You got it, everything. You can be trusted. There's a great illustration right now going on outside. I didn't plan to write this down, but we got warm weather kicking in, right? And that does something to the ice, right? Does something to the ice. And, and if the ice is thick, you can have just a tiny bit of faith. If you have enough faith and you put yourself on that thick ice, it'll hold you, right? Because the ice is thick. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's just you're putting your faith in the right thing. If the ice is really thin, you can have a lot of faith, but you're going to crash through, right? What, what God is saying it, it, through these scriptures, you reveal myself, is he goes, you can trust me. Even if you can have that little faith where you just put yourself, put your weight on me. I can be trusted. If, if I would die for you or you're going the wrong way, how much more can I bring you home? So let's, let's close our service today with an opportunity for you to pray that prayer. So let's, let's pray. Would you join me? Father, I want to thank you for this group of people who, many of whom I'm sure disagree with, with a lot of things I said, but we pray your Holy Spirit would speak and build off of what they already know to be true, what you've already implanted in every human heart, that justice does matter, that consequences should fit the crime, that it is a noble thing to sacrifice yourself for others. Holy Spirit, would you open up their hearts and minds to believe that you did those things, that you did sacrifice yourself for us, that it was necessary and that it's the only way to be saved. And Lord, would you help us now to have the faith to put our full weight on you, to believe that you can be trusted and to come to you with everything. Lord, I thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit, that person, the Trinity, who does so many things, including making us more like Christ. So Lord, would you right now, Holy Spirit, bring to our mind the areas where we're not trusting you fully, the areas where we're going the wrong way, and would you give us the courage and conviction right now to say, right here, right now, I turn to God, I say, you take the wheel, you take my life, and I'm going to trust you with everything. Speak to us as individuals, speak to us as couples, speak to us as families, that we may be brought home all the way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have an awesome week.